Hey, so uh, it's interesting to me that Cole was talking about anxieties and burdens and, and these kinds of things. He didn't know that I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and I didn't know he was what. I didn't know that he was going to say what he said, but uh, what I want to say is that most of my life, I've, uh, just to be honest, I've struggled with, um, I guess you could call it stage fright, or there's probably, probably clinical terms, uh, performance anxiety, uh, these kinds of things, but the idea, regardless of what you want to call it, the idea is that uh, for me, at least throughout my life, when I've had to uh, be a certain person, or when I've had to uh, perform a particular thing or, or do something in front of people, uh, I've, I've struggled with some pretty intense anxiety. Stomach aches, can't sleep, can't eat. Uh, those times for me often become times where I believe lies about myself, uh, self-doubt creeps in, uh, on and on. And so the way that this has looked kind of throughout my life, just to give you some examples, when I was a little kid, I love to play sports, played lots of sports, but I played baseball, and I think baseball was the first time as a little kid that I realized that, that I had anxiety, or, or at least that at times I struggled with anxiety. I remember as a little kid, uh, I was an infielder. I played second base uh, pretty much my whole life, and when I was a little kid, I remember every time our pitcher would pitch the ball. I would, you know, you're down in the kind of the stance, and, and instead of my glove being on the ground or at least pointed down where it should, my glove was in front of my face. And the reason it was in front of my face was because I was praying to God that that batter didn't hit me the ball. Now, it was probably silly at the time. Uh, you know, it's kind of a silly kid doing a silly thing, praying to God, oh, isn't that cute that he doesn't get the ball? But for me, I was legitimately terrified. Like I thought, I was convinced, I, I was pretty good actually, but I was still convinced that if, if the batter hit me the ball, I was going to somehow blow it and look stupid in front of everyone that was there. All right, fast forward, middle school and high school. Middle school and high school for me, uh, I don't know why, it just felt like kind of one giant performance. Uh, particularly with my teachers, I wanted to uh, impress my teachers, I felt kind of this intense pressure at times to be a certain kind of student. And uh, I wasn't good in every subject, and so the subjects that I wasn't very good in, you know what I did? I cheated a lot. I mean, literally cheated to get through classes, but, but I did it because I was so concerned about what teachers thought of me, not obviously if they knew that I was cheating, but that I was smart enough to get good grades in their class. Now, there's some irony right there, right? Like I was cheating in order to appear good. Uh, fast forward to college. College is probably for me where uh, at least up to this point in my life, this anxiety kind of peaked. It was my junior year. I was president of my fraternity. I loved being involved in Greek life. I was president of Farmhouse. And at the time, Farmhouse was going through some, some pretty serious things. We had some things going on legally. We had some things going on with the university. We had some things going on internally. And, and as the president, kind of it all starts with you and stops with you. And so I felt intense pressure in those moments. But I also felt intense pressure because I was in some of my harder engineering classes, classes that I had to pass in order to go on to the next class. And, and to be honest, I was barely keeping my head above water through it all. And so it's the week before finals. I'm in Ellis Library. I'm studying with a group of people. And I'm just so completely overwhelmed. I'm so exhausted. I'm worried. I'm anxious. And I had a panic attack right in the middle of Ellis in front of all these people. And we didn't call it a panic attack. You know, that was, gosh, 15, 17 years ago, something like that. I know I'm old. Uh, we didn't call it that back then, but that's exactly what I had a panic attack in Ellis Library. 
because I was so anxious about having to do all the perform in my fraternity, perform in my classes. And I wish, I wish, I wish that I could say that I left all that anxiety behind me. I wish I could say that that left me in college and, and I've kind of moved on from that. But the reality is this is not true because it's, it followed me to my job here with Veritas. It followed me to grad school when I was in seminary studying to become a pastor. It, it quite literally at times has followed me to this stage when I've had the opportunity to, to stand up here on Sunday mornings and speak to our church. See, I could go on and on and on with the various ways in my life that anxiety has kind of plagued me in these moments where I've got to live up to the expectations of people. Now, here's the point of why I'm sharing all this. If I could just be really honest with you, it's this. It's I struggle. I struggle with what people think about me. And the reason why I struggle with what people, I struggle with what you think about. The reason why I struggle with what people think about me is because I want approval. I want praise. I want respect. I, I want to be accepted. I want to belong. And so what this often means for me is that, that I've, I've gone through seasons in my life and, and have extended seasons in my life where, where I'm terribly afraid of not meeting people's expectations. I feel this constant pressure at times to meet the expectations of what other people want or need me to be. See, the reality is that I do all these things. I worry about what other people think of me. It's because that's where I find my identity. If I'm completely honest, oftentimes I find my identity in what other people think and expect of me. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Ronda Rousey. Now, you might not know that name. If you don't, that's fine. I didn't either when I first saw the video that I'm about to show you. But just some context, Ronda Rousey, this is back in 2015 or so. So, uh, I don't know, what is that, seven years ago, something like that? Uh, seven or so years ago, 2015, Ronda Rousey, many people said Ronda Rousey was the best female athlete to ever exist. She was a MMA fighter. Uh, she had won, and in 2015, 2015, she'd won 12 consecutive MMA fights. She was a strike force champion, a UFC champion. I have no idea what those things are because I don't watch the sport, but that's what I read, right? She's, all these things. Some said that she was the best female athlete to ever exist until she got kicked in the head by an underdog named Holly Holm in a fight, knocked unconscious in the first round, and lost her title. It was her first professional loss. She had never lost a professional fight before. Months later, she goes on the Ellen DeGeneres show, and, and she talks about this experience. This is the video. I want you to watch For what minute, like, she said. Could this be permanent? Did I really hurt myself, and maybe I'll, I won't do this again? No, to be honest, like, what I was saying, like, my, honestly, like, my thought, I was like, I was like uh, in the medical room and I was like down in the corner, I was sitting in the corner and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and like thinking about killing myself in that exact second. I'm like, I'm nothing. I'm like, what do I do anymore? And no one gives a shit about me anymore without this. And then, um... It goes on and on, and, but that's the gist, right? And, and, and I just think about that for a second. It's her literal only loss. One of the best athletes in the world. And after the fight, she's sitting in a training room thinking about killing herself, wondering to herself, what am I anymore if I'm not this? What am I anymore if I'm not this? See, being a winner 
That's who Ronda Rousey was. That's what people expected of her. But when she lost that, when that was taken away from her, what did it leave her with? It left her with an identity crisis. Who am? She says, what? But really, she's asking, who am I anymore? Who am I anymore if I'm not a winner, if I'm not a champion? Who am I anymore if I'm not what people expect me to be? Now, of course, our circumstances are different, right? I'm guessing none of you are MMA fighters, nor are you aspiring MMA fighters, but maybe. But at least right now, you're not. So our circumstances are different. But the reality is, is, is we're asking the same question. We're asking that same question. There's some research done, uh, put into a book uh, by the Fuller Youth Institute uh, about Gen Z. And uh, among many things, it talks about the questions that, that your generation is asking. Uh, and one of those questions in particular is this question, uh, who am I? This is one of the most important questions, at least based on all the research, all the studies, all the interviews of, of people in your generation. This apparently is one of the most important questions to your generation. Now, there are lots of ways these authors in this book go on to say that, that you all are answering this question, but they say there's four kind of most common responses. The four most common responses when asked, who am I, according to your generation, are these responses. The first, I am what others expect. Who am I? Well, second, I'm not. Fill in the blank, enough. Next. Who am I? Well, I am my image. Whatever image I project on my brand, what other people see. Who am I? Well, I'm more than my label. I'm more than what other people say about me. Now, I think that there's, there's a lot here. And I think what, what this variety of answers, and this is obviously just a summary, right? This is even the sum total of all the responses that there is to the question, who am I? These just happen to be apparently the most common responses. But what this shows me, and I think probably you, if we're honest with ourselves, is that we really do share the problem that Ronda Rousey had. We've got an identity crisis. We've got an identity. There are all sorts of ways that we are answering the question, who am I? And so because that's true, Alex mentioned this, mentioned this last week. Because that's true, that's just what we want to talk about. And so for the next four weeks, just to give you a, this is what's coming. For the next four weeks, we're just going to walk through each of these things. And we're going to talk about what, what, why do we feel this way? What is our culture, what messages are, are our culture giving us that reinforce these ideas? But more importantly, let's compare it and contrast it with what Jesus has to say in the Bible. Okay? So tonight, we're going to look at the first one. I am what others expect. Who am I? I am what others expect. This is the most common response according to all the research on your generation, in answering the question, who am I? And for me, what it does is it highlights this tendency that I think that we all, at least in part, have, kind of like I mentioned earlier, we look for identity in what other people want or need us to be. Or to say it a little bit differently, we feel pressure to live up to the expectations of other people. You feel pressure to live up to the expectations of people around you. I feel pressure to live up to the expectations 
Because we look for our identity in other people and what they think. Simone Biles, she's a good example of this. If you remember um, a few years ago, the 2020 Olympics uh, held in 2021 because of COVID. Uh, If you remember Simone Biles' story, right? Simone is one of the most decorated gymnasts in U.S. history. High expectations. Everybody thought Simone Biles was going to kill every event that she did, but, but it comes out that Simone, what, she had to withdraw from several events because of, she said, mental health. She, the expectations, the, the pressure of performing, it got so great in her life that she said she didn't think that she was healthy enough to compete safely. And so while all this is unfolding, everybody kind of has their opinion, some good, some bad, some, some good things, some bad things, saying all of this, the world is watching, right? This is a worldwide event. Everyone is watching the Simone Biles story, U.S. Gymnastics. And what's interesting to me, in the midst of it all, she sent out a tweet that I think is pretty telling. This is what she said. She said, the outpouring of love and support I've received has made me realize that I'm more than my accomplishments in gymnastics, which I never truly believed before. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, probably should say it's also kind of sad, right? This is, this is one of the most decorated female gymnasts in history. She kills everything that she does. But it wasn't until this moment where she had to withdraw and she had to get affirmation that that was okay That she realized that she was more than her accomplishments. That she was more than gymnastics. That she was more than what people expected of her. Brett Favre, famous quarterback, Green Bay Packers, at least most of his career. He kind of once famously said this. He said, you're only as good as your last pass. You're only as good as your last pass. You can be great. You can be a future Hall of Famer. You can throw an unbelievable 70-yard touchdown, but the next play, if you get sacked and fumble the ball and the team goes the other way and scores a touchdown, that's what they remember. You're only as good as the last thing you... See, see what, what's interesting about these two is you've got high-level athletes, right? The best at what they do. Admitting their struggle to live up to the expectations of the crowd. Acknowledging the tremendous difficulty, the tremendous pressure that they felt to perform in front of an audience. Now, of course, you don't have to be a professional athlete. I'm, I'm using all these professional athletes. You don't have to be a professional athlete to feel that kind of pressure, do you? I've already said that, that many of us, maybe all of us to some extent, we feel that. We feel the pressure that comes with, with high expectations. We feel what, what it's like when, when people have expectations for how we act. We feel that pressure that comes when it seems like everyone around us is watching every move, watching how we live, watching how we act, how, how we talk, what we say. You see, I say we, I feel that. I'm guessing you do too, and and I think it's okay for us to admit that that's hard. That it's it's hard to walk around feeling like you've got to constantly live up to the expectations of other people. It's hard, isn't it? So that book that I mentioned earlier about Gen Z, uh, those authors, they, they are talking to people like me and older, and they're saying, hey, this is... For you old people, this is what it's like to be 
uh, a life in the day of Gen Z. They say, imagine that you're having to perform a play in front of a packed theater, in front of a packed crowd, in front of a packed audience. Because this is what it's like to, to be in the life of a Gen Z, a day in the life of a, a Gen Z person. Right? They're, they're performing a play in front of a packed audience, and on one side of the auditorium, you've got immediate family, and you've got surrounding family, and you've got extended family. And in the center of the, the theater, you've got friends, you've got coworkers, you've got classmates, you've got teammates, you've got fraternity uh, brothers, sorority sisters, you've got dorm friends. The, that's the crowd. And then over here, you've got teachers, and you've got mentors, and you've got coaches, and you've got church people. And in the front row, in the front row of this play, you've got all of your followers on social media. But then up in the balcony, the balcony's packed. It's packed with all the people in our culture, all the people in your life that are telling you what success is, what beauty is, what achievement really is. And then they say, now catch this, here's the role that this person plays. Your role in that play is to please every single person in the audience at every moment. That's what they say. I don't know why I'm telling you about what it's like to be like you, but, but that's what they're saying, that it's like to be like you. That's what it's like. And see, I read that, and I say this with empathy, not judgment. I read that, and I think to myself, gosh, Kyle, no wonder this generation, which, by the way, it's not just your generation, but your generation in particular, gosh, Kyle, no wonder this generation is struggling with an identity crisis. It's no wonder. I don't, I truly, I don't mean that with judgment. I mean that with empathy because it has to be exhausting. It has to be exhausting. Cole said this earlier. Some of us are here tonight and we're exhausted. My guess is part of why you're exhausted is because you're constantly having to please every single person in the audience at every moment of your life. And you're tired of it. I read Elon Musk the other day. You probably know Elon Musk. Uh, he said that he's uh, trying to be in the habit of Constantly exceeding people's expectations, right? He's making it a life goal for himself that he wants to uh, consistently meet other people's expectations or exceed. And, you know, I thought to myself when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's probably a good thing for, for a guy who runs Twitter, for a guy who's trying to send people to Mars, for a guy who's trying to, you know, uh, self-navigating self vehicles, Tesla and all this stuff. It's probably a good business idea to want, as the CEO of those companies, to exceed people's, to exceed customers' expectations. But I also saw, thought to myself, you know what, that must be a pretty miserable way to live life. That guy has to be miserable at times, trying to live in a way that is constantly, consistently exceeding people's expectations, constantly feeling like he's got to live up to what people think that he needs to be, what he needs to do, constantly thinking that uh, he, feeling like he's got to make choices based on what other people want him to be or want him to do. Constantly worrying about what other people think that he should be doing or what he should be saying or what he should be fill in the blank. You see, it's, it's exhausting. It really is. It's exhausting. And it's more than exhausting. It's completely overwhelming. 
Which is why, again, to connect to you all, I think cue stats, right, on burnout and anxiety and depression that is just ravaging your generation right now. And it's, of course, it's not just because of this, right? But that, those things are true, that your generation in particular is tremendously struggling with those things, burnout and anxiety and depression. I don't want to rush past that. I want to lean into this a, a, a bit because I know those things, those things are real, right? And they're really bad. Burnout, anxiety, depression, those things are bad. Those are not good things in our lives. But here's the thing. I want to lean into this a bit because I actually think the stakes are higher than those things. I think it's more significant than just being burnt out. I think it's more significant than, than just having anxiety. I think it's more significant than just being depressed. When we talk about finding our identity in, in other people, meaning it's not just a horizontal problem. It's not just a problem I have with myself. It's not just a problem I have in relationship to other people. It's actually a vertical issue in my life. It's an it's a issue that I have with God. And see, what I mean is that, that finding our identity in what others think or expect from us well, it hinders our relationship with God. It gets in the way. It inhibits our ability to follow God faithfully. and inhibits our ability to love Jesus as Jesus calls us to. Let me show you an example from Scripture. So, Gospel of John. John is one of the four biographies uh, written about Jesus in the Bible. John is one of the 12 uh, disciples, followers of Jesus, closest followers of Jesus. And he's kind of even in on a more inside circle. John is one of Jesus' uh, good friends, close buddies. And he says this, John chapter 12, verse 42. He says, Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than they loved praise from God. So, so what, what's going on here? There's a little backstory. Let me, let me catch you up. So, I don't know, five, six, seven verses before this. John is, is, is writing, and he's saying to this audience, he's saying, look, uh, you know, in spite of all the things that Jesus is doing, Jesus is well into his earthly ministry at this point. Uh, he's performing signs that, that point to his deity, the fact that he's God. He's doing miracles. He's doing all these things, and yet in spite of all these things that people are seeing, people are experiencing, people are witnessing, they don't believe. Right? They, can't, they, they can't put their faith in him. There, there are people that aren't willing to trust that Jesus really is who he says he is. And, and yet, then John, a few verses later to our verses, he says, but well, actually there are some. There are some leaders. So, so people who in Jesus' day that, that had authority, clout, social clout, respect, power, etc., Right? There are some, John says, who are kind of increasingly believing that, that Jesus really is who he says he is. At the same time, some of them started to believe in him, but, John says, there's a problem. And the problem is that they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith. They wouldn't publicly confess their allegiance to Jesus. Why? Well, it says right here, they were afraid. Afraid of what? Well, it says they were afraid that they would be put out of 
the synagogue, that, that they would be kicked out of the synagogue, which for them meant that they would be kicked out of their peer circle. So they would lose respect, and, and they would lose some of that authority, and they would lose some of that power, and they would lose some of what other people thought of them, and they would lose some of their friends. And so here you have a group of people who are, are, are starting to believe Jesus, but there's a, there's a kink in that, right? There's, there's a problem. They're, they're afraid of being kicked out. In other words, John says they love human praise more than they love praise from God. They didn't want to lose the respect. They didn't want to lose the friend. They didn't want to lose the power. They didn't want to lose the, the sphere of influence that they had if they would have openly confessed, openly acknowledged their faith in Jesus. We can kind of imagine that, that if that were the scenario, if they were to confess Jesus publicly and then they were kicked out of the synagogue, out of the church by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that they might be thinking the same thing that Ronda Rousey felt in that training room after the fight, thinking to themselves, they've been kicked out of the synagogue. They're sitting there and they're wondering, what am I anymore if I'm not this? Who, who am I anymore if I'm not a part of this group, if I don't have this authority, if I don't have these friends, if I'm not blank? See, finding their identity in what the religious leaders expected of them, thought of them, well, I want us to see it hindered their ability to follow Jesus. It hindered their ability to publicly follow Jesus. And the same warning is there for us, right? That when we put our identity in what other people think of us, it's going to actually get in the way of us being able to follow Jesus. Certainly publicly. But not just that. John goes even deeper. Earlier in John chapter 5, this is what he says. This is Jesus talking to a group of people. He says, how can you believe Imagine Jesus saying this. And Matt, how can you believe in me since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, finding our identity in what other people expect from us, it doesn't just keep us following, uh, from following Jesus publicly. It keeps us from following Jesus, period. Jesus says here, he says, how can you believe that I'm God if you're too busy living your life as if people are God? It's a tough question, isn't it? I mean, it should, it should cause us to pause and say, am I doing the same? Am I walking around in my life? Am I being hindered from a relationship with God because I'm too busy treating people like their God. I want the glory that comes from people, not the glory that comes from God. I want the praise that comes from people. I want to live up to the expectations of people, not live for God. See, I think we need to consider that question because Jesus is saying that to them, but he's saying it to us. And so I want to go back to John chapter 12 real quick because for these religious leaders, the thing that, that they were afraid of was what the Pharisees thought. The thing that they were finding their identity in is what the Pharisees expected of them. But, but what happens if we pull that word out? That's written to them. What if that, if we pull this word out, what would we replace that with? What would it be for you? 
Maybe a different way of asking it is, is who would it be for you? But because of my classmates, I wouldn't openly acknowledge my faith in Jesus. Because of my teammates, because of my girlfriend or my boyfriend, because of my fraternity brothers or, or, or sorority sisters, because of my coaches, because of my professor, because of my family. What is it for you? Uh, who is it for you? If you're honest with yourself, that is hindering your walk with Jesus. Chris Martin, lead singer of Coldplay. Uh, I love Coldplay. I'm a millennial, so I can say that. Uh, he, uh, years ago, this is probably two years ago at this point, uh, he was doing an interview with BBC. And uh, it was an interview. They were asking him, they said, hey, you know, what's it like? Like, you're traveling the world. You're used to traveling the world. All, you know, all these shows, all this money, all this you know, attention, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we've got this pandemic, and now you're in lockdown. Like, what's that been like? And, and I think it's interesting. This is what he says. He says, last year was quite an eye-opener. I was like, who am I without Wembley Stadium saying, you're awesome? Now, here's a guy who, you know, he's played, what, thousands of shows in front of millions of people, nine-figure network, superstar musician, nothing he can't have, can do whatever he wants. And yet in this really honest moment, he wonders out loud, he says, who am I without thousands of people screaming? You know, that picture where he's like, you know, he, he wants it. Like, who am I without thousands of people screaming, you're awesome? Who am I? It's the same question that, that we've got to ask, right? Who is it for you? Who is it in your life that you are, are wanting to hear? You're awesome. I accept you. I approve of you. Who is it? Whose praise, whose approval, whose expectations are you, are you trying to live up to? Who's, who, who in your life, what, what scenario in your life is it that you feel this pressure to meet this expectation of what they think that you should be or what you need to be? Now, here's a different question. What happens when you get that? Some of us have gotten those things, right? We've gotten the thing that we're chasing. Some of us haven't. I wonder, though, what, what is it like? How's it going for you chasing that constantly? How's it going living that way? Like you've got to constantly meet that expectation. You've got to constantly have the praise. You've got to constantly have someone in your life telling you you're awesome. Well, okay, here's a different What happens if you get it and it goes away? What happens if you get it, but then you lose the fight? What happens if you get it, but you can't live up to the moment? What happens if you get it, but then you throw a bad pass, and that's the pass that they remember? What happens if, if a pandemic forces you to not be able to do the thing? What happens? You just start all over again? Just keep trying, find something new, look for a new thing to find the... It's exhausting, isn't it? It's so tiring, and I think if we're honest, overwhelming, living like that. 
And so what I want to ask is, what if, what if instead of looking to ourselves or, or, or looking to other people for, for our identity, what if we turn to God and, and look for an identity not based on anything that we do for other people, but we look to God for an identity that's given to us on the basis of what Jesus has done for us? It's not an identity based on what you do. It's, a, it's an identity based on what Jesus has done for you. 1 Peter 1 Picking up in verse 3, praise be, Peter writes, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Music team, you guys can come back. See, what I want to say is that Jesus gives us an identity. What this verse tells us, Jesus gives us an identity. Jesus gives you, you're looking for an identity. Jesus is giving you, Jesus is offering you an identity that can never be taken away. And the best part about the identity that Jesus wants to give you is that you didn't do anything. You don't have to do anything. Not a single thing to earn it. And so what that means is that in college you can get off this hamster wheel of, of, of trying to be what other people want you to be. You can get off this hamster wheel of feeling so stressed and all this pressure because you're having to constantly play out this, perform this play in front of all these people and, and please everyone all at once. You can get off the hamster wheel and instead you can rest. There's that word Cole also said. We sang about it earlier. You can rest in what God says about you, in who God says you are, a child. You are a child of God if your faith is in him, an heir to all he has and all you could ever want forever because of Jesus. So last thing, there's this author, Oz Guinness. He's long gone at this point. Uh, he said this at one, at one point in a book. He said, most of us, whether we're aware of it or not, we do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or the other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but the question is, what audience do we have? And if I could leave you with one thing to continue thinking about tonight, it would be that. It's not a matter of what, it's not a matter of do you have an audience, right? The problem is not that we have an audience. The problem is that we tend to live for the wrong audience. And so I want you to think about that, not just right now, but when we leave. What audience are you living for? I mean, be real honest with yourself. Maybe be real honest with God. What, what audience is it that you're living for in your life? Maybe share that with a friend. Pull someone into that. Is it, is it an audience of people? Or is it the audience of the one true God who has an identity for you as his child because of Jesus that will never fade, will never perish, will never spoil? Let's pray. Jesus, if we're honest, 
a mixed bag. It sounds great to say, yeah, I, I would love to find my identity in you, and I would love to live for the audience of one, but if I'm completely honest, God, there are so many ways in my life, this is me talking, in my life, that I live for some other audience. I live for the expectations people have. I live for the expectations I have for myself. But God, I'm tired of that. And I'm guessing my friends here tonight are tired of it too. And so I pray that you would encourage us. Reveal to us, Jesus, the ways in which we aren't living for you. God, would you soften our hearts. Help us to want to want you more. To seek the identity that you offer freely. The identity that you give us that will never be taken away. Pray this in your name. Amen.